Welcome to the Red Sneaker Writers Podcast. News, interviews, and writing tips for people who are serious about having a writing career and want some practical knowledge to help them achieve it. Your host is the nationally best-selling author of more than 50 books, William Bernhardt. Ho, 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 Red Sneaker Writers. As I'm recording this, we're just past Christmas and a few days before New Year's, so I'm very much in the festive holiday spirit. We had a great holiday, and I'm hoping that you did too. And now we're looking forward to the year ahead, but we're writers. So, of course, even though (laughs) the holiday season should be when you rest and relax, I bet you were writing should have been. And I bet you stayed very busy. I did in this past week alone. Let me think. My wife and I recorded by Zoom two holiday songs. That's up on Facebook if you want to check that out. Um, I recorded a reading from my holiday novel, The Midnight Before Christmas. I made holiday suggestions. Plus, we've been running this big 12 Days of Christmas promotional a contest online, giving away autographed books and, you know, your name and my next book. It's all designed to promote my next novel, Final Verdict, which is now on pre-order. You can order it now. Looking forward to an official release on January 19. This is the sixth and final, at least for now, book in the Daniel Pike series. Now, I've got some big announcements coming in the year ahead, which I'm very much looking forward to put this year in the past and look forward to the future. I hope you feel, I bet you feel the same way. Anyway, big announcements. And no, I don't just mean final verdict or whatever else I write in the year ahead, but talking about changes to this podcast, changes to the WriterCon website and WriterCon itself. So, You know, if you have any suggestions about the podcast, about the conference, uh, whatever, this would be a good time to tell me. Email me, wb at williambernhardt.com. What could be easier to remember than that? Or you can just go through my website and there's a way to contact me there, too. That's williambernhardt.com. While we're in the planning and revising stages, this is the time to share your ideas. So please do. Please send me any suggestions that occur to you. For this episode, my special, very special interview guest. I mean, it's 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 the holiday, special holiday edition. So who could possibly be better than my friend, New York Times bestselling author, Steve Barry? Yes, that Steve Barry, the master of the international and historical thriller, like books like The Warsaw Protocol and many others. He's been on the podcast before talking about writing in general, but this time I asked him specifically to address series characters. What makes them click? What makes them successful? And who better to speak on this topic than the man who gave us, among others, Cotton Malone, probably one of the two or three most successful series characters of the last 20 years or so of publishing. So that's an interview you want to hear. But first, the news. I'm starting the news segment with what I think is one of the most bizarre stories coming out of the writing world like ever. 
apparently for some time now, although it's just been reported in a breaking story from the New York Times, apparently for some time now, someone, nobody's quite sure who, has been stealing unpublished manuscripts. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about people like possibly those of you listening to this podcast, unpublished, unsold, and still working at it. I'm talking about people who have sold books, you know, who have publishing contracts, but prior to the release of the book, even prior to the release of review or advanced copies, someone has been hijacking their manuscripts, which is really a bizarre and hard to fathom thing to do. Uh, I mean, sure, we know that there's illegal piracy and you can download books on the Internet, but that's nothing new. And that usually happens when the book goes out in ebook format. This is happening much earlier and the manuscripts are not turning up online for downloads. So why? What's going on? This has targeted many major authors like Margaret Atwood and Ian McEwan. Uh, Ethan Hawke, who you may also know as an author, uh, books have included Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed and The Sign for Home by Blair Fell. And what's behind it? Now, I don't want everybody to run into a panic. Like I said, they're not going after unpublished manuscripts from people who are still breaking into the writing world. But whoever the thief is, is that somebody has some information about the publishing World, They're sending emails that look credible, look like they are coming from an editor or an agent and use lots of publishing jargon like, you know, I've read your partial. Can you send me the full manuscript and stuff like that? Why? What's the theory? People have speculated, but no one really knows. One theory advanced that I think is the most credible is that the pirate could be someone from the literary scouting community. And just in case you don't know, scouts are out there looking for potential properties for development as films or television series. And this year, of course, has been a blockbuster year for Netflix and other streamers. And a lot of the most successful properties have come from books, uh, Pretty Little Liars or The Queen's Gambit or The Flight Attendant all came from books, particularly when people are doing, you know, an eight episode or 10 episode series, but it's all telling one continuous stories. Books are a great source of information. So there's always been people competing to get advanced copies and then report to whoever they're scouting for, a uh, motion picture company most commonly, but it could be a lot of, you know, production companies or whatnot. That goes on all the time. And, of course, it is a race to be the first person to recommend the project and then the first person to buy the manuscript in question before there's a big bidding war because everybody wants it. So that's at least a possible theory. But nobody really knows for sure what's going on. I do want to, again, make the point that this scam is targeting manuscripts that have already been sold not manuscripts by authors who have not yet sold them. They've been sold but not published. 
But if you're still noodling on something, I don't think you need to worry about emailing it to your friends or beta readers. This is something different. I know from the workshops I've conducted and retreats that sometimes people are paranoid about sharing anything about their manuscripts, and that's a mistake. Getting feedback from people is almost always a good idea. This is something different, but it is something very weird and worth being aware of. Of course, you know, if if you're still working on a book and it really is being swiped by somebody who's scouting for a motion picture company, then having your manuscript be in their hands may not be the worst thing that could happen to you. But it is very disturbing for publishing companies who are hoping to control the process. Let me give you another story. This one has to do with the CASE Act C-A-S-E, which I mentioned before, it's an idea of basically creating a, a small claims court for copyright copyright cases, a way for people to prosecute infringements online or anywhere else of their copyrighted material, like your books. Typically, this has been hard, complicated, and required major legal fees. Well, now... With this new copyright claims board within the U.S. Copyright Office, you can bring claims even without an attorney. I mean, get one if you want to, but you don't necessarily need one as long and you pay a fee between $100 and $350, depending upon what exactly it is you're fining. And you can request up to $15,000 in damages. That's why I call it small claims court. There is an upper limit, but you don't need an attorney. And this might make it more accessible for people, regular people, to defend their copyrights. So I think this is a good thing. Just to be clear, as I'm recording this, it has passed Congress, but our president has not yet signed the bill. It is part of the current Coronavirus Relief Act, which everybody thought was going to pass easily. And then the president made a speech criticizing it. And then people started trying to revise it. And now we're not exactly sure what's going to happen. I think it's going to pass, though, one way or another. And even if it doesn't pass this session, it's going to pass next year. So this is a good thing to know about. Because this is the end of the year, I wanted to give you kind of a sales wrap-up, although probably none of this will be a surprise if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, but book sales are up. We are one of the lucky ones that in a tough year, when a lot of people have seen a lot of financial problems, book sales have actually gone up, and e-books in particular have soared, although even print books. Even with bookstores mostly closed, print book sales are up about 8%. A lot of that, of course, is happening online. And some of that is fueled by big-name authors. In particular, of course, President Obama recently published his book, Promised Land, which last I looked had already sold over 3 million copies in hardcover. I mean, that's an extraordinary number. Most years, we don't see a book that does anything like that. And there have been other politically themed blockbusters, too. So that may be distorting the numbers somewhat. But still, book sales are clearly up. 
The bad news, of course, is that independent bookstores revenue is way down. I doubt if Barnes and Noble had a banner year either, but clearly the independent bookstores have been hard hit. They've lost, by most estimates, about 30% of their sales overall. At least 58 stores, according to the ABA, have closed this year, and they're estimating that about 20% of all existing independent bookstores may close soon. If you have an independent bookstore that you love, or you just want to support independent bookstores, as we all should, this would be a great time to find a safe way to do it. Of course, who is benefiting most from all of this? That, of course, would be Amazon, the largest bookseller and largest retailer in the United States. They've seen revenue increase by 37%, and that was the number recorded at the end of the third quarter. I mean, that's even before we got to Christmas. They were up 37%, and their sales weren't exactly puny before. So this company is really growing. Bottom line here, Red Sneaker writers, people are still reading, and people are still buying books. I know I've talked a lot on this podcast about artificial intelligence and sites like Author AI that may be able to help with the editing process, maybe, but it cannot replace you. The world is still very much waiting for your story, Red Sneaker writers. So make the time for this and sit down and write. My writing tip section this time is inspired by an article I read online. This actually appeared in Oprah magazine, not where I normally go for information about the publishing industry. But this was a great article and you can read it online for free. It's called I'm a Romance Novelist Who Writes About Politics and I won't stay in my lane. This was written by Alyssa Cole, who is a very successful romance writer. And the point is that she's not embarrassed at all about using the real world. Yes, she's writing a a popular fiction, obviously entertainment, but still isn't afraid to address contemporary issues. For instance, she says, and I'm quoting here, that the happily ever after in the most recent romance wrote, uh, romance book she wrote, quote, comes only after Shanti and her king, Sanyu, navigate toxic masculinity, a government made of old men who refuse to respect fresh ideas from younger generations, and a community of marginalized people who organize in the back of a bookstore to help drag their country into the future. End quote. Well, I thought this was wonderful. Let me give you a couple of reasons why, and then I'll give you the caveat that is the the writing tip that I'm offering. You know, people often criticize romance novels. I don't know why they are the, the, the whipping child of popular fiction. I suspect it's because they're written mostly by women for women. Uh, you always hear people talking about trashy romance novels or a- a- acting as if there's nothing to it. Well, here's some books that have something to them that are clearly politically engaged. I might point out, in case you didn't know it, 
that very well-known politician Stacey Abrams has also written several romance novels under a pseudonym. So even if you think of this as this genre as being all fantasy and fluff, that doesn't mean there can't be some content of value or some takeaway for your readers. Are there dangers? Of course. My Daniel Pike series, which, you know, I'm wrapping up now with Final Verdict. Did I mention that? I'm pretty sure I did. Uh, Anyway, the first book involved a young girl who's about to be deported. I won't go into the, the, all the details, but I, I thought she was keenly sympathetic. Nobody wants to see this poor orphan sent back to her family of uh, sex trafficking cartel members, <laughs> regardless of how you feel about immigration. But, you know, go read the reviews on Amazon. Some people clearly saw it as being political and being anti uh, President Trump or pro-immigration or stuff that's not even in the book. Uh, do I care? No, I really don't. I think some writers have always engaged with the real world and there is nothing wrong with it. It doesn't limit its appeal. Since we're just past Christmas and you probably saw one, if not a dozen adaptations of A Christmas Carol, let me remind you that Charles Dickens always engaged with the real world. He was always the social reformer, and his books often led to real social reform. Did that hurt his appeal? I don't think so. He may be the most successful novelist of all time, and even today, when some of the things he wrote about, like debtor's prison, don't exist anymore, and some of them, like want and ignorance, thank you, Ghost of Christmas Present, still very much do, but the point is... More than 150 years later, those books are still widely read. They have heart that speaks to people, that really transcends the political and gets more to humanity and what kind of people we want to be. So here's my advice, Red Sneaker writers. Here's my writing tip. Don't be afraid to set your books in the real world and discuss real-world issues. You don't have to, but you can. But what I would caution you against is hammering your readers over the head with a particular political position, like acting as if you must agree with me, and if you don't, then you're just not very smart or something like that. Sometimes a tickling feather is better than a hammer. And always better to dramatize than to lecture. You should always acknowledge that there is more than one side to a complex issue. But bottom line, remember that if you've created a sympathetic protagonist, that protagonist's actions will have more impact than some lecture. So show them doing the right thing, the loving thing, the caring thing, and let that be the way that you influence your reader. I could not be more excited about presenting this interview with Steve Barry, the many, many, many times New York Times bestselling author of so many wonderful historical thrillers, especially since he's right in his wheelhouse 
uh, speaking about series characters in a time when series characters have never been more popular and represent such a brilliant potential way of breaking into the writing world. Here's what Steve has to say. Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back again, Bill. I wanted to talk to you this time about series characters, because I know there's a lot of interest in series characters, a lot of demand for them. Uh, It seems to be uh, more of a popular way for writers to go than it has been in the past. And you, of course, with Cotton Malone, have one of the most successful series characters out there. Uh, but I remember you didn't start with Cotton Malone. You did uh, two, three novels, three. Before, three novels, and then with the Templar Legacy, introduced Cotton Malone. What what made you decide to create a series character? Well, it was really Random House's idea. Really? Uh, Mark Tamani, my editor at the time, said, let's create a series. And that was a little weird for me because I don't read series. I mean, I never really have read series. Now, I read Dirk Pitt, you know, Clive Cussler, yes. but those really aren't a series. Those are each kind of standalone books. Every one of them are standalone books. They just happen to go one after the other. Um, I wasn't a big series character uh, reader, so it was a little difficult for me to figure out how to do that. So we created Cotton Malone and wrote The Templar Legacy. And when I wrote it, I did not have any illusions that I was going to get to do this 15 more times. I was just hoping <laughs> to get through it you know, one time. So I, I, I created Cotton, mm-hmm. and he did very well, very, very well. I mean, as I said, that's my biggest-selling book then and biggest-selling book of all time is mm-hmm. The Templar Legacy. It still sells a lot of copies today. And Cotton was created, and so we, we kept him going. Now, mm-hmm. what I've learned – and I learned this from Lee Child. He taught me this because he writes the Jack Reacher books. Right. And each book in a series has to be the same but different. The same but different. Now, how does that how do you make that? That's a that's a tough, that's a tall order now. Yeah. So how are they the same? Well, there are, every book is action, history, secrets, conspiracies. Okay? How is it different? Different history, different protagonists, different so what's different settings. Everything about the book is different than the other. The only thing the same is action, history, secrets, conspiracies, and of course the character Cotton Malone. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've learned that trick. I write, I've written 15 Cotton Malone books mm-hmm. and I get asked all the time, do you have to read them in order? Absolutely not. You can read them in any order you please. I write them where you can come in and out of the series however you want. And that's what I learned from Lee. Mm. The same but different. I mean, you're basically saying every book can't be exactly the same, but sort of every book needs to be the same, except in 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 different words, uh, and in different in different settings and mm-hmm. different motivations, right? All those kinds of things. I, every one of my books are utterly different, utterly different. But they are the same because they involve action, history, secrets, mm-hmm. conspiracies. Is it challenging to come up with those new fresh elements? Extremely challenging. It's harder and harder every year because I want something that no one's ever touched before. I don't want to do what someone's someone's up done. And I I'm it's hard. I have to find that thing from history, that thing from the past that's real. I cannot make it up. It's got to be real. 
And it's got to be something that's going to interest me and is going to interest the reader. And then I have to make it relevant today. It still has to matter today, that thing from the past. Mm -hmm. I call it the ooh factor, the thing from the past, the thing that kind of makes you go ooh, like Templars or Charlemagne or Mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And then the other thing is the so what. Who -hmm. cares if we find the Library of Alexandria? Mm -hmm. Who cares if Queen Elizabeth I was a man? (laughs) Who cares, uh, you know, Uh, about the Templars one way or the other. What does it matter? I have to have that so what today. Mm -hmm. And they're hard to, they're getting harder and harder to find. But thankfully, I'm okay for about four more years at least. (laughs) And then a new series character? No, no. I just have to come up with a new idea. I I have, I have, I'm okay for 21, 22, 23. I'm okay. Oh, you're saying you've got four years, uh, four years of ideas or stakes planned. Yeah, well, well, the 2021 novel's finished. It's already turned in because, mm-hmm. you know, you do a year in advance in the book business. So I turned it in this year to publish next year. I'm writing the 2022 novel that will be turned in later this year. And then I've already got the ideas for 23 and 24. So as I said, I'm OK for four years. Hopefully within the next four years, I'll find a couple more ideas. I have a hunch you will. What what were the elements uh or what were you thinking of when you created Cotton Malone, Copenhagen, used bookseller, uh, former was, government server? What, what, what were you trying to do there? Uh, how are you going to make him appealing? Well, I wanted him to be different. You've got to create somebody a little different. Mm-hmm. So I was in Copenhagen when he was born. I was in Ibro Plods, which is a square there. I was eating at the Cafe Nordon and there I was, and he came into my brain. Huh. Uh, he's going to be a retired Justice Department agent. He's going to own an old bookshop. Because you love <laughs> old bookshops, right? Bookshops, yeah. And he's going to uh, uh, be get himself into trouble all the mm-hmm. time. And he kind of came into my brain, and I wrote down the elements of what he should be. And I went back home and I wrote the Templar legacy and created him. Now, the, what I wanted from him, he's not a Daniel Craig kind of guy. He's <laughs> not. He doesn't work out every day. He doesn't run 20 miles. He doesn't bench press. He, he's an ordinary guy who can do extraordinary things when called upon. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why he's kind of caught on, because he's not a superhero. He makes mm-hmm. mistakes. He screws up, but he fixes it in the end. You know, you mentioned Daniel Craig, a James Bond actor, obviously, but it occurs to me that in the early Ian Fleming novels, James Bond is much more ordinary, even talking about how boring he is in real life, but rises to the occasion. Uh, right. that, that's, that's where a lot of, some of that came to me from reading those early Ian Fleming novels. The James Bond of the movies and the James Bond that Fleming created originally are not the same character. Right. Especially uh, in the early the, novels. Right. And because the best spy is the one you never notice. Which <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Who would not notice? <laughs> and I assume Cotton was a former government agent uh, because that gives him skills. Even if he's not working out every day, he can handle himself if yeah, he needs I had to. You have to have that element in there. But I made him retired. So he, he quit it early and he moves to Copenhagen. Again, divorces his wife, moves over, owns an old bookshop, 
and just kind of gets drugged back in all the time mm-hmm. against okay. his will. Yeah. But he, you know, and so, and, and I use those personal motivations for a lot of books, but hell, about eight or nine books in, you just run out of them. So I had mm-hmm. to transition him over. And now he basically works for hire. Right. Now, speaking of not being James Bond, uh, Cotton is very successful, you know, professionally dealing with the bad guys, but considerably less so in his personal life. Was that a deliberate choice? Yes, he's terrible with women. Terrible. He's not good with it at all. He's divorced from his wife. He has a son that's not biologically his. Mm. Um, He has to deal with that. That's dealt with in several of the novels. And he uh, he has a father that he that died when he was age ten, and that was dealt with in the Charlemagne pursuit. Um, he and, and then he he meets Cassiopeia, and in the beginning, Cassiopeia was not supposed to be really a love interest for Cot. He was, she was just kind of kind of come in and go out, but she stuck around, and she's there now, and now they have a relationship, and they and she's become a very popular character. And when I don't put her in a book. I catch hell for it. <laughs> she was introduced, am I thinking right, in one of the short stories? She was introduced in the uh, in the Templar Legacy. Oh. When she, I actually introduced her there, but she was a kind of a, she was not a major player in that. Okay. Uh, so I, I wasn't going to keep her, but uh, Elizabeth, my wife, said that that wasn't an option. So she had to stay. And so, because Cassiopeia is basically her. Ah. So she wanted she wanted her to continue, and so she has. And now I actually broke them up at the end of one of the novels. Um, I actually ended their relationship completely. And she had read the, the – the, she's the first reader of my manuscript when it's finished. And she read it. She came in. She threw it on the table. And she says, that's not going to happen. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, she just, not going to happen. I, Fix it next book. So I did. Oh, wow. That's, that's like Edgar Rice Burroughs trying to kill off Tarzan's Jane and publishers saying, nah. <laughs> I would say Liz earned a new pair of shoes on that one. Uh, she did. She tried. Uh, I mean, I, I, I never intended Cotton to be monogamous. And, and let me tell you why. And because when you write a series, and if you'll notice this on television and all, the protagonist of the, of the, of the TV series almost never have a family, right? They never have a wife. They never have a husband. They have ex-wives, ex-husbands and ex-families. And the reason for that is, as you well know, you've written this too. They get in the way after a while, right? You know, they just kind of get in the way. We're writing a story. Each one member has to be the same, but different. Mm -hmm. And you can't sit around and deal with a family in every story and introduce everybody and go through all of that. It's better to keep them kind of freelance. And I always wanted Cotton to play the field. He was never to be monogamous. But again, Elizabeth, there's where she stepped in. She says that's not going to happen either. Mm. So uh, he's now kind of settled down with Cassiopeia. And uh, I confess, I wish he could play the field a little bit. I think it'd be a little more fun from a writing standpoint. Well, a relationship limits, uh, you know, cuts off. But then again, given how poor Cotton was with women, maybe this is for the best. Yeah, and she understands him and she gets him and she knows how to deal with him and he knows how to deal with her. And it's worked out very well. Cassiope comes about every other book. I don't have her in every novel. 
about every other book. And when she's not there, I bring in another character called Luke Daniels, who's a younger guy. Mm-hmm. He's a younger version of Cotton. So I can have a character who can make mistakes and screw up and really, you know, because he's learning on the job. And Luke comes in when Cassiopeia is not there. Maybe it's my imagination, but I think that Cotton's imperfections are not good with women. His personal life was a mess. Better now with Cassiopeia, but but I think that's part of the appeal. I think that's what humanizes him and makes people want to read more of him. That's what I was hoping, too. I mean, that's why I gave him those imperfections. I, I wanted him to be someone we all know and someone like you don't mind being stuck on an elevator with him. You think you'll get tired of Cotton? You mentioned Lee Child a minute ago, who, of course, has announced that he's done writing the Reacher books. uh, He is passing the torch. He's going to take them over. Right. So you think you'll ever do something like that? I think not not anytime soon. I think me and Cotton are going to be together for a while. he, he, He serves me well. He does a great job. And I like him and I enjoy him. So I'd like to keep him going. I wouldn't mind branching out a little bit. I wouldn't mind Luke Daniels having his own book. I wouldn't mind mm-hmm. Cassiopeia having her own book. Um, that would be fun to do, yeah. but I don't want to get rid of Cotton. No. That's sensible. <laughs> Can we talk a minute uh, about history? Your books are so steeped in history. That, too, is clearly one of the appeals. Uh, people learn a little something at the s- same time they're being uh, entertained <sighs> How do you come up with that stuff? What kind of research do you do? Well, it takes it's about an 18 month process to research one of my novels. Uh, mm. I do it six months. The last six months of writing the novel or I start researching the next one. And so I use around 400 sources to write a novel. And those are books. I use physical books. Wow. I buy the vast majority of them at a giant um used a bookshop here and it's in Jacksonville called the Chamblin book mine. It's a wonderful place. It's a, he's got incredible selections in there, just thousands, tens of thousands of volumes. I'm very fortunate to have that where I can go get the material I need. And I, I don't read 400 books, but I do read large chunks of 400 books. And I take a lot of notes out of those books and those notes stack about six inches high. And of that stack, I'm only going to use about 10% of the information in there. And I don't know when I'm going to use it till I start writing the novel. The hardest thing for folks in my genre is mixing information with action. It's the hardest Mm -hmm. thing to do. And I'm not saying I'm great at it or I'm wonderful at it. I'm only saying I'm very conscious of it. And I make a very conscious effort to mix the information with the action as carefully as I can, so you don't get too much of either one of those. Right. No, actually, you're very good at it. The integration of exposition, so the plot doesn't ground to a halt, <laughs> or people feel like they're being lectured, but right. still, you you give it that fascinating nonfiction, uh, extra layer, subtext, whatever you want to call it. It's It's one of the things that makes your book special. Thank you. The, the trick is, is for them to be reading down the page and all at once they just realize they learned something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And they, and they never they never realized it till they got about three paragraphs down. Mm. They go, oh, I just learned something. That's the trick. <laughs> you can do that. that's, that's, the, that's the goal. Yeah. 
Since we're talking about history, can we talk a minute about History Matters, your nonprofit, which, uh, among other things, I think is helping to preserve historical landmarks? How did that come about? About uh, 11 years ago, we decided we want to try to give back a little bit. So Elizabeth and I created History Matters. And what we do is we go around the communities, we help them raise money for their local historical projects. Uh, we've done libraries, buildings, posters, documents, books, cemeteries, you name it, we've raised money for it. About 90 projects around the country and one wow. in Canada. And we've raised a little over $2 million for, for those various historical projects. Uh, historical preservation is a local thing. There's no one going to come do it for you. You've got to do it yourself. And we help communities with that. It's been very gratifying. And hmm. we don't do as many as we used to. We do one or two a year now, and we try to find the right thing. And if we find the right thing, we, we go for it. Mm, that's fantastic work, though. You've really <coughs> taken on some fantastic projects. Steve, thanks again for being on the podcast. Great to, great to be here, Bill. Bye-bye. Thank you again, Steve, for that wonderful interview. And let me remind everyone... First, of course, you knew I was going to say this. Final verdict. The sixth and final Daniel Pike book is now available for pre-order. And this is a great time to send me any suggestions regarding this podcast, my website, the WriterCon website, the conference, the retreats, or anything else. My email address, again, is wb at williambernhardt.com. Your ratings and reviews of this podcast are always appreciated. Until next time, it'll be a whole new year when I talk to you next. So you know what I think your New Year's resolution ought to be. Keep writing. Make yourself write every day. And remember, you cannot fail if you refuse to quit. 